today, but I'm, I'm going to do a kind of a different approach and uh, take a, a kind of broader view because there's a passage here and a, a concept that is a fairly unusual concept or uh, difficult to get immediately. And that is that in the in Romans 8.20, it says, The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own choice, but through the choice of the one who subjected it in hope. Uh, and what I want to, to focus on in particular, there is a strange concept in this verse, and that is that the hope that is described throughout Romans chapter 8 is actually originally the hope of God. Um, that this hope of God then is connected down in 28 and 29, that it's going to be fulfilled, it's going to unfold uh, through the predestination of Christ. So there's two concepts laid over and against one another. And that is that uh, just as with faith or the faithfulness of Christ, we then can be faithful I think the same idea is true with hope, that in fact it's originally the hope of God. That as we were talking this morning in Sunday school, that God himself is in the place of having planted a garden and is hoping, awaiting for the fruit of the garden uh, to, to, to come. And so too, that history for God is really unfolding. He's... Uh, that it is a real world uh, that is coming to bear fruit in the kingdom of God. This is a strange notion for us because in a, in a kind of scholastic or you know, a philosophical understanding that often gets fused with the New Testament, the idea that history is real and that things are unfolding even for God himself um, is is a uh, is out of court. That just doesn't fit with an Aristotelian notion of the unmoved mover. So to understand this verse, I think we have to first of all understand the futility and what that futility. You know, obviously that's a a, a, a futility that's true of all of creation, but particularly of human beings. That uh, with that. Uh, futility. There is the loss of the image of God in the man at the fall. And it's recovered. And the way that it's recovered is very much connected to the role of hope. And so I'm, I'm going a long way around with this. So, so please, you know, bear with me. Be patient. We, we are going someplace. And we, we almost have to go back and look at what happened with the fall of man and how it is that we've lost the nature uh, or the image of God within ourselves. And the reason I'm doing this, that the picture that I'm afraid that we often fail to see in hope is hope is a very specific thing. It's hope of the resurrection. You understand in every other religion, in every other world system that's a strange kind of hope indeed because it's a hope in bodily resurrection and so most people when they think of hope they think of a kind of departure from the world so I'm going to describe how that uh, original hope is in fact betrayed in the fall of man 
when we talk about the image of God in man, the original image, you know, God's is actually God's self-image that let us make man in our image. And so we often uh, think that the Trinity is there in the, the creation of human beings. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the counsel of God is there. And so what? how would we bear that image of a plurality of persons except that we too are created in as a plurality, right? So in the beginning, let us create man. How many of them were there? Well, there were two. Let us create man. man and, and of course, the word there is, we should probably just say humankind. Let us create him male and female. So that the two then, this plurality, the male and female relationship, which is the center of the family and society, uh, is the way in which we bear the image of God. So God says that when Adam is alone, this is not good that man should be alone. And then uh, the woman is brought and here, here is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That in some way here is the completion of Adam. But even there, let's not get confused. How many of them are there? There's two. But Paul is going to describe this. He says, the woman is through the man and the man is through the woman, that is through birth. But the two are one in and through the Lord. So that just as God is relational in the Trinity, so too we bear the human or uh, the image of God as humans in the plurality of persons that we are. And that plurality then is inclusive of our understanding of the way in which God sees us. That God, you know, the idea of the image, it's a shared image and Adam and Eve and we too then in our restored image that we have in Christ, we recognize who we truly are only as we recognize that we're the children of God. So when you think of the fall of man, the fall is a fall away from that plurality, relational image. And what all of that says is that the original image is an embodied image. It's inclusive of maleness and females. Well, that's strange, isn't it? That God's image is translated then into this embodied reality that constitutes us. When Adam and Eve fall, you know, the first thing that happens, that the first sentence out of Adam's uh, mouth, he says, I heard the sound. You know, God says, what, what, what are you up to here, Adam? He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And... Of course, the picture here is that he's repeating the word I. He's lost the corporate we. That I does not appear before this in Genesis. Paul will repeat that in Romans 7. So the picture is that the fall of man is a fall away from relationship, a fall away from corporate identity, a fall away from embodiedness, I would say. that The hiding that we go through is a kind of disavowal, you know, of our createdness. Um, think of the, you know, the claim of Satan. I've, t- I've used Joel Olstein, but uh, actually it's Satan that, that imitates God and says, uh, you know, I am 
that I am. Well, that's in the picture of the king of Tyre who is mouthing the words of Satan. If God says I am, well, it's a legitimate statement. If Jesus says I am before Abraham, it's a legitimate statement. But when Adam or man says I am that I am, it's a denial then of our createdness. It's a denial of our creatureliness. Uh, you've, you know, the whole Cartesian project. I think, therefore, I am. Joel Olstein says, I am strong. I am wealthy. I don't know what Joel might say. But the, the idea is that the uh, proclamation of our own being is the foundation of everything. So we get this picture of what a human being is as a kind of dualism. Oh, we're, you know, we have our bodies, but our bodies are not us. That our souls are in some way contained in our bodies. The true redemption, the true, you know, the return to the image of Christ in the New Testament is pictured then uh, as returning to this plurality of persons, to returning to embodiment, uh, returning to uh, in the Christ and the church, the way that Paul pictures this. You know, he quotes Genesis that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one. And this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That it is the incarnation of Christ and in the incarnation that we come to fully comprehend the relational unity of the Trinity that was lost in Eden, and maybe even in Eden, they did not fully comprehend. You know, I don't think it's simply a return to the ideal situation, because even in Eden, there is the potential of a garden of a people that have been planted, and clearly then, the, the fullness of this will only come through the second Adam. So Christ as the second Adam, I believe, reveals not only what it is that God has come to us, but he reveals what it really means to be human. That's his name. Adam, right? The second Adam. Here is the first complete image of God. But in that, that image was the created, this was the image that man was originally created to bear. Here is the fulfillment of the potential that God gave us. So the image of God in man in Christ incarnate brings us back to this idea inclusive of our own incarnation. I think our sinfulness in our fallenness in our shame we would tend to be disincarnate. We would tend to depart. We would tend to fly away. We would tend to discount the reality of this world in some way. Uh, but the incarnation says, no, even God inhabits time and history and a body. And if God then is incarnate, that means these things are ultimately real. So the Bible does not so much emphasize embodied selfhood as assumant. Uh, and the assumption it made may no longer be self-evident to us due to, I don't know why it's what it's due to. We can blame it on the Greeks, you know, the idea of a body and soul. 
But maybe it's not just the Greeks. Maybe just Plato has articulated for us the problem that we all have, even that was there in the garden, of in some way covering up our embodiedness and covering up our creatureliness, hiding from that. A kind of tendency to pursue disembodiment. Um, now, I, uh, as a child, we lived out in Arizona. We lived on the Grand Canyon. My father was helping build the Glen Canyon Dam. And I discovered when I was about four or five that I had a peculiar ability that no other person, as far as I knew, had. Um, I tried, I did, I would do this very slowly. I would leap from small buildings. And if you flap your arms just right, if the wind, you got to have a little breeze. But I discovered that I could attain liftoff. And I, I would fly all around the Grand Canyon at night. I would fly, I remember flying around Window Rock. Um, I don't know why nobody else could do this, but I knew I could do it. Um, my brothers seemed quite ordinary. You know, they couldn't do that. They could play baseball. I, I wasn't very good at baseball, but I could fly. They couldn't do that. I don't know, that's, that's sort of the thing that I think we all are, it's just instinctive to us to kind of fly away, to kind of depart. I don't think we have to blame Plato or Kant. I think just Plato and Kant in some way provide for us the philosophical proof of our being of our ability, you know, to, to in some way be disembodied intellects, uh, that that's, actually that's instinctive to us. If you think of, Faith and I were driving down a street the other day, you know, small children, they'll run out in front of the car. They, they have no fear of these, because, you know, they, they, uh, uh, they'll challenge the largest car because they're innately immortal. They have no sense of, of death. Uh, maybe some of people are enabled by their talent to never really face mortality. They can just spend their life flying free. I'm not sure Michael Jackson ever reached planet Earth. Um, and that's a, uh, he fabricated a life for himself in which he's sort of a Peter Pan-like character. But I'm, I'm not describing just Michael Jackson. I think that was, you know, me. That was all of us. That, uh, But also what comes with that is the painful, torturous world that he fabricated for himself so that ultimately his fantasy killed him. People sacrifice their lives for virtuality. The virtual psychological suffering that in some way becomes more real to them than anything else. It's a kind of self-punishing sort of unreality. I had never heard of it, but I I guess it's a fairly common thing uh, that young people cut themselves, they cut their arms as a kind of, here, you know, here that my, my suffering in my head is a kind of virtual suffering. Well, let's make it real. Uh, it's a kind of Henry Bergson when he was thinking about 
World War One. He said he felt a, a sense of admiration and le- relief with the beginning of World War One because, in a sense, it brought the abstract into the concrete, his own abstract suffering. Um, but sometimes there is a kind of relief when we can, in some way get rid of the suffering in our fabricated virtual suffering for a concrete suffering. I think that's what Paul is picturing in chapter 7, that he struggled, uh, and ultimately the eye, the evil that is close at hand, it sets up a sacrificial economy. Um, uh, uh, He describes it as a murderous and death-dealing lie, a battle that's within, that in fact, uh, are inscribed into the economy of desire. It's part of the agonistic struggle he's describing that he will call the body of death. Religion and culture may seem to just be a way of flying free, flying free of earthy realities. You know, the Babylites would make a tower for themselves and make a name for themselves in and through that tower to storm the gates of heaven on the ever ascending heights of their cultural, their national, their personal uh, project. I think that is the human project. To in some way storm the gates of heaven. To some ways fly free of earthy realities. And yet, think what they did. They stacked some bricks up in an open field and you know, it really didn't amount to very much. Maybe this describes every human project. You know, the Roman project, Caesar Augustus. He's august. He's great. He calls himself the Prince of Peace. He even calls himself Lord and God. Caesar Augustus, we think, is given a poisoned fig and dies of eating this poisoned fig. His last words... Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. What he's saying, my whole life has been an act. It's all been like a grand play. And I've come on the stage. I hope you'll applaud now as I'm leaving. Adolf Hitler gives us the Nazi race, the master race, undefiled by impure blood. He said it will be the new millennium. A millennium will be a thousand years. How long did it last? Twelve years. Um, The Japanese project, which I happen to be more familiar with than most, um, the the very much, there's a book called the Kokutai no Hongi. That is the book that was written uh, by the Japanese military government that describes then the religious, you know, why did the, why was there the invasion of Southeast Asia and the colonization of Korea and, and uh, uh, China and other Southeast Asian countries? It was very much a religious ideal uh, that gave rise then to this notion that, you know, we're going to be a, an empire that is the greatest empire in the world. And of course... It's, a, it's a, in the end, a very sad fiction that they fabricated. There's a whole uh, body of literature that is just the notion of being Japanese is in some way very special. 
But I'm, I'm building up here to come and to be a, a, a little bit personal here. And that is, is the American project any different? We're the true millennial kingdom. We're the light upon a hill. We're the home of the free and the brave. Uh, this was, you know, the idea is that here is the true kingdom of God. I think one again, once again, we're trading in fiction. We're trading in fabrication. We're t- turning from the truth of the kingdom of God uh, to a kind of Tower of Babel project. But unfortunately, people will die for these fictions. They'll die for these fabrications. But what Christ calls us to is the truth, to take up the cross in the cause of the kingdom of Christ and not to bear the crosses that this world would put upon us. The University of Chicago, his name is, uh, he's a sociologist, Peter Berger, he pictures culture and religion as making possible an enduring identity on the basis of a manufactured reality. What this world, what the principalities in this, and powers of this world would do is manufacture, fabricate. Uh, it's an intensified effort to painlessly fly free from the bind of our mortality. To create a name for ourselves. The problem is that if you're flying, it does not permit true friendship. It does not permit true love as the very point is to achieve the pinnacle, you know, the heights, the oblivion of total solitude, which in fact is a kind of living death. In, you know, the picture of in Japan, what is a true samurai? How does a true samurai establish his identity? How does he finally achieve an enduring eternal identity? Only when he lays down his life in a glorious death in the service of his Lord. The local shogun or the, or the local master. Yasukuni Shrine is a shrine that is there in Tokyo in which all of those who have died a glorious death are permanently enshrined and have achieved a kind of Tower of Babel sort of immortality in which they are deified forever in Japan. The human project is conceived in a dualism that would establish an enduring identity in which death and mortality and the realities of this world are in some way denied. And unfortunately there is a history of dualism in Christian thought that has allowed Christians to leave out of account the drives, the needs, the capacities, the delights of our organic bodily existence. And in extreme cases, of course, the body has been seen as the enemy of the spirit. You've read enough church history, you know, the guys that climbed up on poles and denied all of their bodily needs and sat on those poles for 30 years. The Christian ascetics who would, you know, go live in caves and deny this earthly reality. So that some forms of Christianity have been caught up in the fantasies of flight. I like the song, I'll fly away. You know, I just like singing. It's just a kind of a happy song. 
But unfortunately, I think it's bad theology. I don't think we're in the business of flying away. I think that's a four-year-old, five-year-old dream. By the way, I, would, I, I couldn't fly. That was, you know, I hope, hope you got that. Um, so to imagine, you know, Yeats says that the, 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 the soul is fastened to a dying an, animal. There is that tragic picture in, that I think is in fact a misunderstanding. It misses both the fact that we are souls and bodies uh, that but we're not those are not separate things we're not merely souls that have bodies Paul uh, in, in, in uh, the Pauline understanding Paul's soulish human you know the one who is fallen is the precisely the one that does not receive the things of the spirit that is that for Paul soulishness is in connected directly and this is just a Hebrew idea is directly connected to Hebrew the Hebrew notion of embodiment. So Paul describes the struggle, I think, that I've just described as definitive of the body of death, that we are set over and against ourselves, the mind and the body, you know, the law of the mind, the law of the flesh. It's the result, Paul is describing, of the objectification of the body due to the alienation. You know, alienation of sin is an alienation from that corporate identity that ultimately divides us against ourselves. And so the picture, you know, in a, a modernist or enlightenment idea is that the rational soul will in some way subdue the body. That's not Christianity. That's the struggle that is pictured in Romans 7. Paul terms this as, I think, that is the picture of his mind, the law of the mind, trying to subdue the law of the flesh. You can't do it. That's the body of death. The answer to his cry, who will rescue me from this body of death? He doesn't say, oh, well, that would be the rational spirit. That would be, you know, right thinking. No, that's not what he says. The law of the life in Christ Jesus has rescued me. From the law of sin and death. So we've got to learn, in a sense, this is the Christian hope. It returns us to the world. The hope of the resurrection is the realization of the reality of incarnation. We're all incarnate. And Christ Jesus teaches us that lesson. This is, you know, there is in a Jewish understanding a strong embodied uh, sense of reality so that uh, it's really only there that the hope of the resurrection uh, can be seen as good news. Um, in, in a Jewish form of thought, there is no distinction between spiritual and physical death. Human weakness, the corruptibility of the flesh and death are all of a piece in that they characterize the whole sweep of creaturely alienation from the Creator in terms of death. So that it, the physical and the spiritual are integrated. Hope for eternal life beyond death is in fact a remarkable development in Second, Second Temple Judaism. That's why you know when Jesus encounters the, San, uh, the, the Sadducees. Uh, they don't even believe in resurrection. They don't even believe in life after death. 
And that was not unusual. That's an, an, a, a development uh, that's very late in Judaism. Witness the case of Abraham. You know, what was Abraham's hope? Not that his name would endure through resurrection, but that his life would continue in and through his progeny. That his son would be, you know, the, the hope for seed. Uh, so there is then, uh, very late on, the idea of the hope for resurrection, but that's the result of a very strong sense of embodiment. So the hope is not the Platonic Greek, I think, universal hope of a kind of flying free, springing forth from this mortal coil, but rather it's a peculiar thing that develops through Judaism in Christianity into a hope of resurrection. That is definitive of Christian faith. Paul in Romans 4 you know, says, what is the faith of Abraham? It is resurrection faith, embodied resurrection faith. So just as it is the faithfulness of God that is given to us in Christ, I think so too Christian hope in the resurrection is first of all a hope that we participate and share in, and that's what Paul's saying here in chapter 8, that the whole creation was subjected to futility, to a kind of suffering, to a kind of giving over to death, not of its own choice, but the choice of the one who subjected it in hope. It's an open system that God is participating in. And I'm not endorsing here in, in a full or fashion the idea of an open theology, but I certainly think that parts of that then are, uh, are the case. The hope of God, predestination, working itself out in human history is connected. So the temptation is to give in to the futility, uh, to the lie, to death denial, to dualism, to flying free of this world. Isn't that the temptation of Christ himself? Christ's refusal to leap from the pinnacle of the temple to be born on the wings of angels, I think is the refusal of the disassociation of flight, of death denial. His unwillingness to attain the kingdoms of this world that Satan so shows him, you know, objectified from a high mountain in which he can survey the world, in which he would have to bow to the spirit, the noose, the geist, Satan himself, the spirit of the age, in order to obtain. That's always the temptation, that we would bow to the spirit of the age, in which we might imagine that we could gain the kingdoms of this world. But remember what those kingdoms amount to. A poison fig in which Augustus you know, says, I played my part well. It's a fabrication. It's a lie. It's a mirage. So Christ will not turn stones to bread. Christ will offer himself as the bread of life. He will be lifted up. And of course the image is not he will fly away, but he will be crucified. He will bear the cross. And as we are lifted up with him, then we too enter into 
the promise of the resurrection. So his broken body brings us to earth. And it is only in this grounded mortal condition that I think we can truly be with one another. It is the means to draw the world into fellowship. I will draw all men unto myself on the basis of this alternative kingdom that is a real world kingdom that engages reality as it actually is. Not a kingdom that is fabricated, not a kingdom in the sky, not a pretend Peter Pan kingdom, but the kingdom of God with us, the new Jerusalem come to earth. So the disassociation of flight, of dualism, of you know this identity over a kind of dualistic identity in which uh, one is in fact undone by uh, the idea, idea that our own body is our kind of enemy. I believe that that's undone through the body of Christ, through the true temple in which we are incorporated into an incarnate body. The incarnation continues, right? In the church. Here is the body of Christ. This body raised up and descended is not departure, it's not flight nor absence, but it's Emmanuel, God with us. Where two or three are gathered together, Christ is there in our midst. So the hope here, remember, is not, first of all, human hope, but it's God's hope which accounts for the futility. Yes, we acknowledge the futility. We acknowledge the suffering. But we acknowledge it from a different basis. Not that it defines us, but that in fact we understand that it's taking us somewhere. It's the seed that has been planted that in fact germinates. You know, the picture is that it in the germination process, in a sense it dies. Paul allows, Jesus allows for this openness for the suffering maybe that we will experience but we experience it not in Paul's picture of who will rescue me from this body of death as definitive but we get a God's eye point of view on who we are as a corporate body and we get a God's eye view on the perspective of history you know this is verse 29 uh, to to 30 in uh, Romans 8 For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is being described is a natural process. A process in which there is a firstborn, and then there's brothers and sisters added on, a a period of growth. So uh, the idea is that from the perspective of all, in this perspective, all of history falls between the call and accomplishment of God's purposes in those whom he has hope or in those whom he has predestined. Hope has as its center a certainty based on this shared perspective provided in the finished work of Christ that God's will stands over all. God is in control. It's like my little garden out there that I had no hope that anything would come up. But God did it. God brought forth my arugula. 
my radishes. Uh, I couldn't do it. So it's the same way that we have hope, but it's a hope that is based on the reality of what God is doing in history. It's not merely anticipation, rather it's new beginning, rebirth with Christ through the Spirit with the Father. It's the hope that's given us in the picture of the first fruits of the Spirit in in verse 29, so that we would conform to the image of the Son. So in light of this hope of God, suffering, well, there's still suffering, there's still futility, uh, there's still hardship, but it's a very different kind of suffering. It's no longer this unendurable suffering that is in fact a kind of you know, imaginary life of the mind. It's a real world suffering of hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sore. Now you might say, well, that didn't sound very good either. No, but it, in light of God's glory, that we can endure the suffering. Death is not to die. Paul says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We can face the suffering of this present time because they are not of like value to the coming glory to be revealed in us, Paul says. I believe the suffering of chapter 7, the suffering of you know, a kind of fabricated existence, the suffering of a poor, pitiful man like Michael Jackson, which we, we kind of look at and we understand, I believe that ultimately that's unendurable. That'll kill you. We're going to experience suffering, but we need not experience that suffering that we bring upon ourselves. Um, The suffering that Paul is describing, it gives way to resurrection. And furthermore, it is a sharing. Paul says that we endure these sufferings because it is a sharing in Christ's suffering as a mark of our adoption And as a sign that we also, Paul says in verse 17, may be glorified with him. And don't get me wrong here. Suffering is always futile suffering. Suffering is never inherently redemptive. I don't mean to say that. But we can endure the suffering with the idea that in this even, all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The subject reconstituted in Christ is in fact marked by the suffering with Christ. It indicates a passage though from one sort of suffering to a different sort of suffering. A suffering in which we can bear the suffering of others. In which we can be there for other people. In which we can bear the cross of others and that's true agape love that's the way in which uh, we turn then from that isolated fabricated world to the agape the koinonia the fellowship in the body of Christ so the subject in Christ suffers as he did as there is now a new capacity to take up the suffering of the world we're enabled that's the work of the Holy Spirit to bear in this joint suffering which is going to result in redemption. So the picture is the groaning and anxious longing of creation are a suffering in hope on the order of childbirth. It is a suffering which will bear much fruit. 
Let's see.